Abby Strauss, and welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Quite often when a psychiatric issue is brought into the legal system, there are often issues known as competency and insanity. These are tossed about, and most often people really don't understand the differences. Dr. Ryan Hall is a forensic psychiatry in Central Florida, and today we're going to talk about just one of those terms, the competency issue. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Let's start with the competency. What is it? Why is it important? How is it measured? Just fill us in a little bit about it. Okay. Well, in a general sense, competency is the quality or condition of being legally qualified to perform an act or make a decision. Uh, And competency can come up in many different ways. Uh, In terms of just general civil life, people can be competent or incompetent or incompetent to marry, write a will, or handle one's finances. In terms of criminal side, people have issues of competency on whether or not they're competent to waive their Miranda rights. Do they understand that what they say can be held against them? Are they competent to stand trial? Are they competent to waive counsel to represent them? And usually where it comes up is the issue of standing trial. And that has got a very interesting case history to it, which goes back to the 1960s in a case called Dusky v. U.S., which is the basis for most of the competency. Let me interrupt you just for a half a second. The V.U.S., for people who don't know, that means against the United States. Yes. Dusky versus United States, which was a case in the 1960s, where the Supreme Court basically said that a defendant is competent to stand trial if he has sufficient present ability, which is important. So competency is a here and now thing. It doesn't mean how they were at the time that they were arrested or the time a crime may or may not have been committed, but it's how are they functioning at this moment in front of the judge with their lawyer. And that's a very key point. Yes. Because a lot of times people ask, well, how were you at the time of the event? And that is a different issue. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry, sir. Uh, Not a problem. And the key wording there is sufficient present ability to consult with his lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding as well as a rational factual understanding of the proceedings against them. So they don't have to have a perfect understanding. They don't have to have the same intelligence and appreciation of the law as a Harvard Law student does. They just have to have a reasonable understanding. They have to understand what's going on, that they're in an adversarial system, that their attorney is working for them, that there are consequences if they are found guilty, that there are certain rights they're entitled to, such as the right to face their accuser, jury trial versus judge. They just need to understand some of the process, who the players are, and why it's going forward the way it is. So it's one of the basic notions with with competency. Is competency, or shall we say the criteria for competency, the same nationwide, or does it vary from state to state? It can uh, vary to a certain degree state to state. A lot of the notions, though, have kind of come down through the ages. And although I, I may have jumped a little too quick to Dusky versus the United States, I mean, Competency goes back to some of the notions on English law and case law and kind of has progressed throughout the times. And again, many of the large Supreme Court cases have kind of defined how the states look at it. So when you're looking at competency, again, Dusky is a large one. There are some federal statutes that changed after the Hinckley trial, uh, which influences laws. And the other big case that influences competency is something called Jackson versus Indiana, which was a case of a uh, death mute who was arrested for stealing about $10 
worth of items from uh, two different ladies. And because he was deaf and a mute, they thought they were never going to be able to restore him to competency. And what they basically said is, is you can only hold somebody to be incompetent for a certain period of time. And if you can't restore them within that period of time, then you need to either civilly commit them or drop the charges against them. Okay, so this is a very interesting point. Uh, so if someone is incompetent, and we'll get to a bit more of that, but they can't be restored, which I guess in the, in the common parlance would be fixed. Yes. Then are you saying that maybe the charges could be dropped or they just are put into a hospital, that the legal process ends? Well, what happens there, and again, it can vary from state to state, but what the Supreme Court said in Jackson is that due process requires that the nature and duration of uh, confinement bear some reasonable relation to the purpose for which the individual is confined. So competency is a pretrial issue. So if somebody is being held and tried to be restored, and I apologize, maybe I jumped ahead. No, that's what okay. Happens this is good. Is psychiatrists will come, a lawyer may see a patient or see a client, or the judge may see a client and have concerns about their competency. So at any time in the trial process, the issue can be raised. And once it is raised, they are usually evaluated by at least two psychiatrists. And if it is a very obvious issue and both parties agree, maybe just one, but usually it's two psychiatrists and they will see the person and they'll determine if they are or are not competent at that moment in time. They'll report that in the trial to the judge and then the judge makes the ultimate decision. So it's not based just on the doctor's uh, reports, but it's how the judge applies the doctor's reports. And then the issue becomes, can they be restored? Meaning, can the mental illness be treated to the point where they do now have a rational understanding? So that they can Um, participate in their own legal defense. Yes, because mental illnesses can have periods of exacerbation. They can have periods where symptoms are worse than other symptoms. And with medicine, especially in psychotic illnesses or bipolar illnesses, symptoms can be brought back into control to the point where somebody may no longer be delusional or hallucinating or unable to relate. But what Jackson says is that these people haven't been committed of a crime yet. And the Constitution doesn't allow the government to just hold somebody indefinitely without being found guilty. Okay. So you have a certain period of time to restore people. So in the state of Florida, the way that's set up is if you're charged with a misdemeanor, you have about one year to be restored. And if you can't be restored to competency within a one year's period of time, the treating doctors then need to look and see if they meet criteria for civil commitment which is dangerous to self and others and suffering from a mental illness. If they don't meet the criteria for civil commitment, then they are released to the community. Are the charges dropped? Well, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, what happens is is the charges can be held in reserve, meaning that if they think at some point in time you've regained competency, they reserve the right to refile. So again, it's not as if you get off totally scot-free, and that can vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Okay. So one year is for a misdemeanor. In the state of Florida, for a felony, they can hold you up for five years to ensure that you aren't able to be restored. And again, felonies are a much more serious crime if there's a murder or something of that nature. And again, at the end of five years, if they can't restore you, then they look to see if you meet civil commitment criteria. And usually, if somebody is mentally ill enough to be five years and not restored, they usually meet criteria for civil commitment. Occasionally we see in the newspapers where mental health people disagree on whether someone is competent or not. How does, how does the court approach that? Usually what they do is, again, they'll get two experts to look at someone. 
And then if there's a disagreement, they'll either get a third or a fourth expert. And then again, it goes to trial. So if there is legitimate disagreement, which there can be, then the lawyers will cross-examine and testify and see how the experts came to their opinions. And then it'll be up to the judge to decide whether or not the person meets criteria or not. How do we look at different age groups? Sometimes we hear of children or adolescents who are uh, charged with crimes or the elderly. How do we look at competency in those special groups? Is an adolescent equal to an adult? Adolescents become a lot more complicated. The fact that they may, depending on the age, their level of understanding, what you would expect uh, them to be able to appreciate. And again, for people who are familiar with child psychiatry, there's the whole notion of Pinaget's age groups. So certain age groups may not understand abstract thinking or understand the notion of future consequence. So if you're talking to a nine-year-old and talking about potentially going to the juvenile justice system and being in prison for five years, do they really understand what's at stake or what's at risk? That's one of the issues that is frequently looked at. And then again, you try and look at the other issues of do they know what they're charged with? Do they understand what the penalties are? Do they have a rational understanding of why it's important to work with their lawyers and are they able to work with their lawyers? So it's similar things that have to be assessed, but their degree of understanding becomes a lot harder. And especially with children, you want to make sure that they're just not mimicking or parroting back answers or responses. So a lot of times you ask kids to say things in their own words. I know there's been a lot of uh, research into trying to develop kind of a paper and pencil test to help assess kids' uh, understanding of legal concepts and whether they are or are not competent. But as of this moment, there is no defined paper and pencil test or 100% accepted way to test it. It's still based off of the interview and how they respond and if they have symptoms or not symptoms and if their lack of understanding is just due to lack of education or if it's due to a mental illness or retardation. What if it's just a matter of letting them grow up? What if a 14-year-old committed a crime and they're not truly competent in, in the manner of an adult, but they might be by the time they're 18? Would that qualify as an incompetency? In that situation, again, I think a lot of times it gets confused with the notion of sanity. So, again, the competency aspect is just do they understand what the process is? And then the question of whether or not they should be tried as an adult or as a juvenile is a separate issue. So, again, uh, most 14-year-olds, and, again, historically there was uh, Lord Blackburn's uh, Rule of Seven, or Blackwell's Rules of Seven, that anybody under age seven didn't understand what they were doing. Between seven and 14, it was kind of a case-by-case basis. And then anybody over 14 should have been able to grasp the concept of what a crime is and what had been done. And so, again, with the child, you look at do they know what they're being charged with? And most 13-year-olds understand that, yes, I've been charged with doing something wrong. Are they able to talk with their attorneys? Most can talk with their attorneys unless there's issues of mental retardation or if they're psychotic or severely depressed. And then it comes down to do they understand the consequences, which is usually a harder one to assess. Now, the good news is most times you're trying to assess a juvenile, you're still in the juvenile court system, so the degree of penalties is usually less severe. Now, it's when they get bumped up to the adult system that then you have to, again, truly assess can they appreciate what 30 years in jail means and what the impact or consequences of that would be.
it's, it's just an intriguing process and certainly far more complex than people might see if they just look at it from the surface. Well, let me ask you then another question here because it has to do with the assessment. How do you know if someone isn't lying to you? And that's, uh, that comes up frequently. And there are certain tests, psychologic tests that can be done, such as the TOMS. Uh, there's another test out there called the uh, MFAS, but that looks at people who have issues of mental retardation, but will also have symptoms on there. So depending how they respond, if they score like a two on that test, that's very unusual and very rare. That would suggest that somebody's intentionally trying to exaggerate symptoms. And then the other way you look for malingering is, again, the clinical interview. You know, are people reporting symptoms that are out of proportion to what would be expected? Are people behaving one way but by reports of guards and others not doing as well? For example, while you're talking with them, are they staring around the room? They can't concentrate. They seem to be so disorganized due to possibly being psychotic. But yet the guard tells you that they're playing cards and when they're in the jail cell area and they're doing very well there. So again, it's the interview, it's how the symptoms present, do they fit what you know for real patients. There are a couple of paper and pencil tests that may be helpful there in determining it. And most forensic psychiatrists, I think, if they're pretty sure they're malingering, they'll say as much. If they're on the fence about it, what they'll do is they'll suggest that they go to the state hospital for restoration. And it's very hard for people to continually malinger symptoms, especially when they're being observed in a state hospital setting. And usually once they're there for a little while, it becomes clear that, that they're faking because they're interacting well with others. But yet every time you talk to them about what a lawyer is, they, they play dumb or they say they don't understand. And that's such a key element is to, to the, the larger pattern of their behaviors in their day in and day out activities. Yes. Interesting. And I, I think I won't say most forensic psychiatrists, but I think in general the notion is, is you know, better to send a few competent people to the state hospital to be checked on than to have an incompetent person tried. Hmm. Do we see that the proposed use of incompetency is, is it changing? Are more and more lawyers looking at it, or is it being used pretty much at the same frequency? That, that's a very interesting question, and it comes down to a lot of different aspects. One is due to this closure of a lot of the state hospitals, due to problems with follow-up, due to issues with noncompliance with medicines, more and more of the mentally ill are entering into the criminal system. So I, I don't have hard numbers, but if competency has been raised more, there may be actually more people with a mental illness proportionally going through the symptom, uh, system is one issue. The other issue is a lot of times lawyers feel if the crime is heinous enough or if their client has a history of mental illness that they have to raise the issue in order not to have it come up as a reason for appeal down the road. Okay. To show that they have provided a good defense, that they didn't accidentally try an incompetent person. So a lot of times in very high-profile cases or cases where there's a history of mental illness, they will get a competency most, mostly just to make sure that the letters of the law is being followed. Very few people, I think, try and just extend cases indefinitely through competency. As I said, very very few people can fake it for five years and then be civilly committed and released shortly. So it may be sought as a way to delay for some people, but it's not an effective way to delay long, long term. So as we go through such potentially, well not potentially, what would probably be a very high profile case such as the Fort Hood 
uh, murders. And I have read, but though I don't have any hard definitive data yet, that they may be looking at a mental health component to the defense. People need to keep in mind the sort of things that we're talking about today. And as they talk about competency and later on when you and I get back and talk about insanity, to understand the concepts that underscore or support a lawyer's efforts to use those as part of the defense. Yes. And again, I don't want to talk on any one case since I, I haven't seen or evaluated the Fort Hood person. Uh, Agreed. The, the other thing to remember there is I'm not sure if they're going to be trying him in civil court or if they're going to be trying him in a military court. And again, military uh, law is very different than civilian law. And a lot of times when these cases do come to court because of the great amount of emotion that they evoke, and, and, and understandably so in the community, sometimes the lawyers will be taking positions that people don't truly understand but are required for as the work of a good lawyer. Yes. And what's interesting is I was recently involved in a case where they were actually streaming the competency hearing uh, on the internet live and I uh, went back and checked some of the post blogs later and they had four mental health professionals, three psychiatrists and one psychologist who all saw somebody who had been uh, charged with a very public crime, all say that they were incompetent at that time. And the message blogs all said the same thing, that he's not competent, these people are just whitewashing it, they're trying to get him off. And again, I think a lot of people were confusing what competency is. It's not whether or not he did the act or didn't do the act. It's not whether or not he has an insanity defense or not. It is whether or not he's able to work with his lawyer right now. And that is a very key point, and I think an excellent point that we can stop today, and, and we'll come back and address this later as things evolve. Dr. Ryan Hall is a psychiatrist, a forensic psychiatrist in the central part of Florida, and I want to thank you very much for being with us, sir, and we will be back with you as we can talk about other issues, and perhaps as particular cases come up when the information is public, then we can banter it about and offer some insight and some hopefully educational opinions on what we're seeing. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Take care.